What's up, guys? Welcome to True Crime Queen. My name is Ginger. Listener discretion is advised. The dark nature of the show is not suitable for young ears or those sensitive to graphic material. But without further ado, let's go. So there's great news, you guys. I read a whole freaking book for this case to make it as juicy as possible for you. And guess what? No one dies in this weird ass tale, but there still should be a trigger warning for sexual assault and instances of rape. This case is absolutely bananas. A serial rapist is terrorizing a city for three years until his apprehension. Normally, that's where it would end. However, this is only one part of a story that's literally so stupefying it was made into a movie a couple years after a book. I can almost guarantee that you've never heard a story quite like this one. This is the case of Frederick Kevin Coe, the South Hill Rapist. Real quick before we dive in, I just wanted to take a second for a few international shoutouts actually. Thank you so much to Bert from Brazil. I am very, very grateful for your super kind and uplifting review. It totally made my day, man, and maybe even my whole week. I don't know. It's going to be super tough to beat anyways. My next message of love is sent all the way over to Marissa in South Africa. Girl, I just really appreciate all your support and kind comments. Thank you so much. All right, let's get into it. So Spokane is the city that this happens in. I've said it in a couple other podcasts, but in case you're new around here, Spokane is my hometown and it's literally nothing but parks and schools, basically. However, we do have our fair share of crime and homelessness as well, at least these days, but I'm going to take it way, way back to the 70s. So Spokane, Washington was super hipster for the day, and it once hosted the Expo 74, which was the first environmentally themed World's Fair pushing towards a cleaner earth. Three years later, in 77, we would found the annual outdoor event known as Bloomsday. It's a special route throughout the city that's a little over seven miles. Anyone can participate, runners, joggers, walkers, children, and even those with handicaps, but you will not catch me out on Bloomsday, however, because... The only time I'm running is literally when I'm running late, and that is all the damn time. So, any hooser. Now it's 1978, an up-and-coming Spokane, Washington. They're getting fit. We're outside. We're running. They're jamming to the Bee Gees. The goat, Jimmy Carter, is in the White House. When all of a sudden, a crime wave hits the city like Solange did Jay-Z back in that elevator. You guys, pepper spray is sold out. All the larger breed dogs are adopted out of the kennels. Men are said to literally be avoiding women while out jogging because there's been a huge rise in reported rapes, sexual assaults, indecent exposures, and peeping Tom incidents over the last year. So the first victim I'm going to talk about is in 1978. It's a 19-year-old woman that's walking alone in the streets of Spokane after leaving a restaurant where she had just had a spat with her husband. When she's suddenly grabbed by a man lurking in the shadows who drags her to the side yard area between two vacant homes. When she screams, he quickly covers her mouth and tells her that if she remains quiet, he won't hurt her. When she screams for the second time, he then aggressively shoves his entire freaking hand into her mouth and down to her throat. He holds her down this way while managing to pull up her shirt and pull down her pants. The skeezball stranger actually begins to go down on her while she's wondering what the hell she ever did to deserve something like this. 
She's busy praying to God when the attacker snaps her back into reality because he begins yelling at his own penis out of frustration. When he literally gets himself together to further assault her, this asshole has the actual nerve to start asking this poor woman if she's enjoying herself, if she has a boyfriend, if she's from around here. After the rape has ended and he's getting himself dressed, while she's just laying there in shock from the purely bizarre encounter she just had, he says almost assuringly, now don't tell the police or I'll have to come back and kill you. He makes off into the night and when she feels she's alone again, she manages to get herself up and starts banging on door after door until someone lets them use their phone to call the police. These crimes aren't just happening anywhere, but they are mostly being reported to have happened just blocks away from the heart of downtown Spokane in the neighborhood known as the South Hill. At that time, and really even to this day, it's mainly home to Spokane's elite and upper middle class families, and it overlooks the beautiful river and growing city below. The city's hospitals and emergency personnel are reporting very similar injuries and descriptions from many of these women reporting the attacks, but this is just the beginning. So I guess back in the day, but I'm really sure they're also around still, I'm just, I'm just not sure where they are anymore. Anyways, there's four or five privately owned massage parlors around the city of Spokane. They were known to offer more than just massages, if you catch my drift. They had fallen victim a couple times to an unknown assailant who managed to tie up a few of the girls working there and individually assaulted them in the same manner that women out on the streets jogging or walking have been. One incident reported in the book that I read for this research details an account from one of these girls who was assaulted at the massage parlor. She describes the usual breakdown of movements from attempting to get hard while asking questions, telling them not to report or he would return and kill them. But the oddest thing to me in this particular instance was that this masseuse says that she was watching this man aggressively yell at his dick and the wall like he was arguing with someone else in the room that she couldn't see. He would stop yelling at the wall to turn to her and apologize profusely that he didn't mean to scare her or hurt her. She said also that when he went to leave, he immediately stopped crying and got very stern and warned her again that he would come back if she called the police. It's some serious Jekyll and Hyde type of shit there. Apparently, leading up to the night of her attack at the same parlor, they were said to be receiving up to like 75 telephone calls a day by some creep asking the very same type of personal questions that the man who attacked them was asking. After the attacks on their staff, they even held their own personal meetings on about which of their customers would be most likely doing this, but none of them could fully agree on one man. A very major victim in this case was a woman named Sunshine Shelley Monahan. She was a very popular face around Spokane in the late 70s and even to this day. She was a bright and bubbly 21-year-old radio DJ with a huge fan base for the time. She was known to drive her Volkswagen around town with a mobile phone and would read your license plate number on the radio show. And if you happened to be listening, she would ask you to pull over and you would win a prize. The book even tells about how she would broadcast from her hospital room after she came down with pneumonia one year. I mean, the girl is just awesome. However, it's early September in 1979, and during a few late-night shifts for a radio show, she began to notice a man who was posted up watching her in the studio while she was recording, and she didn't recognize him. After it happened a second time, she asked her bosses to install a lock on the studio doors, as well as adding a floodlight to the makeshift parking lot outside the building. It sits on the very, very top of Spokane South Hill. 
Unfortunately, neither one of those very reasonable requests were filled, and after finishing her broadcast, she was walking to her car, and a man came out from the very dark shadows around her car. He grabs her by the throat and began dragging her out farther into a nearby field. He tried to put his hand into her mouth, but she actually bit him hard enough to draw blood, and that's when he started beating the shit out of her. She screams out for help, but he punched her so hard in the nose that she knew he had broken it. He then gets on top of her and punches her over and over, and so much so that she's starting to choke on all the blood that's going down her throat, and he's just not letting her roll over so she can stop choking. She's still somehow managing to keep him from spreading her legs apart, so he decides that he's just going to rub his dick in her face instead. He then starts asking her questions about her own sex life and making comments on her breasts, just being overall crude as hell. He makes it even worse by now yelling at her to pee on him. Which, like, bro, I would have pissed myself five minutes ago, sir. Are you kidding me? Then after a few other various attempts to further humiliate this woman, he has the fucking audacity to open mouth kiss her like this is some romantic affair or some shit. He begins really mind-fucking her when he starts patting her on the back and telling her how much he admires her work, and it would be a shame if this ever happened to her again. He assured her that he knows where she lives and that he would come find her and kill her if she reported this to the police. His last weird question, though, was, how do you plan on furthering your radio career? Like, not only does this woman have to endure this whole horrifying experience, but she also has to endure his bullshit interview of sorts. It's... it's... It's bananas, people. When she felt it was safe again, she ran inside her radio studio's building and told her coworker, who was actually on air, that she had just been raped and they needed to call police. They immediately take her down to the hospital where she's questioned, swabbed, photographed, and allowed to see her husband. She actually started broadcasting again, first at her home, while she was healing up from the flu, finger quotes. A couple weeks after, she eventually returned to the station and she began getting harassing phone calls by the attacker. He was reminding her that he was going to have to kill her now and that it would happen when she least expected it. And you know what, guys? This queen walked back into the studio and finished her broadcast like it was nothing. She is a savage, y'all. She eventually moved on to other cities as an anchor and finally removes back to Spokane years later. But she even went on around the state and held a few therapeutic sessions with lectures on how being a victim of rape doesn't have to be the end of your life, and tells others about her periods of healing through the attack and then her subsequent divorce. She did end up getting remarried and even became a local real estate agent for a little bit. In the months after Shelley's attack, at least seven additional attacks had occurred. Some of them failed, and a couple instances where the women were actually able to get away and lock themselves in their own cars, the man would proceed to masturbate into the driver's side window of their car. I mean, I'm not really sure why none of these women never opened their car door and broke his fucking wiener right there when they had the chance, but obviously, it's you're too scared at the time. It's, too, it's really too bad, though, that someone didn't shut it down that way. The community in Spokane starts raising awareness on the rapes and the different attacks that are being reported. White outlines of where victims are attacked are spray-painted throughout the areas of the city to show, quite honestly, that there is a serial rapist in the neighborhood, and despite the authorities not addressing it quite yet, the rumor mill is flooding and people know they need to be very careful when alone, especially women on the South Hill. 
The similarities in the crimes reported are showing a pattern that the perpetrator is said to grab his victim from behind, usually with gloved hands, but not no regular degular gloves. This weirdo uses either thick leather gloves, or get this, covers his hands with oven mitts. Like, like why you gotta do hamburger helper like that, man? This dude will wear a jogging attire, jog past his victim, duck down behind a car or something, and put his signature gloves or oven mitts on, and then return to the victim from behind and either pick them up or drag them a short distance away to some sort of cover. There, he is said to often shove his hand into their mouth and hold them down by their throat, while violently raping them, if possible. When not, he'll try oral, he'll grope them, but all while saying these crude sexual things or super personal questions in a rather professional-sounding voice many of them had said. It was also said by a few women that they thought that his hands were rather small for his size in general, and also he was much stronger than he appeared initially, and most often didn't appear intimidating as he was clean-cut and younger-looking. However, the assaults would continue over the next year, and many of the patterns in the crimes were not getting picked up by authorities. Due to the distribution of how the crimes were being reported, sometimes it's just a case of groping, other times it's a charge of public masturbation, and then it circles back to rape. Each time, one of these crimes would end up on a different detective's desk, which apparently at the time, and to be honest even now, seems like the police department is somewhat undermanned. These incidents had definitely fallen through some major cracks, and if you think about it, these are just the ones that the victims were willing to report, never mind the dozens of others that probably never were. By the fall of 1980, a young woman named Julie Hermia had just moved into her first home on the South Hill of Spokane with her newlywed husband. Even their realtor had warned them when they purchased the home of the rumors about a serial rapist being on the loose. Though Julie, being a very independent and mature young woman, wasn't very concerned. After her first day of work at a jewelry store in the downtown area, Julie rode the city bus up the hill near her home, and she actually missed her first stop because she's still sort of unfamiliar with the area, though she figured she would just walk the extra block home, no big deal. So she's walking along in her short little professional heels, clicking along on the sidewalk, She's thinking about how she's going to decorate her home next week for Halloween, and she notices a man jogging in her direction. Lost in her own thoughts and unfamiliar with the severity of the danger she could be in, she continues walking along as she watches this man jog past her like normal, when all of a sudden she hears him return from behind her when he picks her up and carries her into the bushes. She's featured in the investigation discovery show called Shattered in its episode called In the Shadows of the South Hill. I was able to watch it on my demand with my cable provider, so I'm not sure if I'll be able to link it, but I would definitely search it on your, like, Roku or cable menu if you're interested in watching it. It's a pretty good episode. Julie describes how her attacker throws her on the ground and begins beating her as well. She tells reporters how this man is literally holding her down by her tonsils, and then he's switching hands and grabs dirt and twigs on the ground and is shoving them down her throat. She said he was saying all these awful things the whole time, and she's just praying that he kills her quickly if he's going to. At one point, she acted as if she had passed out, and when he finishes his business with her, he told her to count to 50 before getting up or that he would kill her if she looked at him. But this idiot didn't realize that he should have been wearing a mask and not gloves, because Julie Harmia spent every single second she could studying this motherfucker's face. She noted his large nose, his wavy brown hair, 
His voice and how it sounded professional and smooth like a radio announcer. Like mine. No, I'm just kidding. His square jaw and deep-set, slightly slanted eyes. When she was able to get up, she ran to the neighbor's house wearing only one of her little kitten heels at this point. The man who answered happened to be a retired firefighter and called the police and medics who took her down to the hospital. Her husband came and she remembers laying in the hospital bed and overhearing the police talking just outside her room when she hears that she appears to be the 30th victim of the city's serial rapist. Doctors later told the courts that the injuries to many of the women's throats were like they had been rubbed with gauged sandpaper, often with cuts to their cheeks and tongues from a heavy stitching on the attacker's gloves. Not long after Julie's attack, the morning newspaper in town was mapping out victim incidents for the whole town to see, while another nightly newspaper was offering $1,000 for tips on their anonymous hotline, leading to the apprehension of the town's serial rapist or rapists. They mapped out attacks showing a striking correlation with some of the local bus city routes and the accumulation of the similarities in attacks, and now having a victim who is actually able to describe this man-man to a sketch artist, the community is fully aware of the danger that looms. It's late 1980 when the small department of Spokane Police say, Task Force Assemble and focus catching on the media, which has finally dubbed this guy the South Hill Rapist. Six more attacks would occur before police could zero in on a few leads, unfortunately. Apparently, some of the women in town had wised up to level of psychotic mindfucking status, and when giving in to what their attacker was really after, their fear, they would instead play along and act interested in this man. This, of course, would completely turn him off, and he would get frustrated, and it ruined the attack for him, but he actually gave one of these women his business card. It was set on Shattered, one woman who was actually raped twice by the same man, decided to get dressed and casually give this dude a kiss on the cheek and walked off like it was nothing. And you know what, you guys? I fucking love that. Don't give these creeps what they want. Rise above, ladies. One evening, a woman named Mary Galixon is out jogging on a popular route in town known as the Centennial Trail. This is when she sees a man ahead of her and she can hear him yelling something, but when she slows down and hears that he's yelling a bunch of crude nonsense and whistling... He's also waving a dildo around like it's his own. But this is one bad bitch, y'all, because she is like, oh, ho, ho, screw this noise. She doesn't run off and cry. This lady starts yelling back at him and actually starts running after this dildo-waving weirdo. And he has to dip or she's gonna tackle his ass. A few blocks away, a security guard for a local power company has come across this random car parked on their premises when he notices a young man running out of the wooded trail to this car. He speeds off like a bat out of hell, but he manages to get the license plate number before he drove away. He noted it looked like a bright yellow license plate and jotted down the number. Police find this interesting as it's pretty similar in nature to their cases and run the plate number as it might be a possible lead. When the plates come back on the car, it happens to be registered to the managing editor at one of the city's daily newspapers. It turns out to be the very same man who was directly in charge of taking the anonymous tips from the newspaper hotline. His name is Gordon Coe, and he had worked at the Spokane Daily Chronicle. It's the area's nightly editorial coverage for like the past 30 years, and pretty much has himself a reputation of gold. 
The task force believes Gordon is too old to be the man being described in the attacks and doesn't believe he's the guy that they're looking for. However, does have a son who happens to fit the description much better and even more so when they pull up his juvenile and adult criminal records. This Frederick Coe, a 34-year-old guy who grew up in Spokane, went down to California for school, Nevada for work, and then returned back in 77, working as a not-so-good real estate agent during the day and running a one-man booster group at night called Spokane Metro, which is really pushing for a more hip city at the time. Fred is a man who quite literally lives in his own little world and stars in his very own show in a way. He's basically a spoiled little rich kid. They find he's had one failed marriage and currently has a living girlfriend. He was said to have two official shady incidents on his record when they initially look into his criminal background. The first was from 1966 when he's 24 years old. After meeting at a dance, a 16-year-old girl who asked Ko for a ride home after, but instead of taking her home, he drives her to a secluded wooded area where he pins her down and she describes his violent shaking which I'm guessing he was masturbating, but maybe that's not the case. He then dropped her off downtown again and didn't even take her home, and there were no official charges made against him because the girl's mother had chosen not to pursue any, unfortunately. Five years after that, in 1971, Ko had reportedly entered a woman's apartment when she awoke to him, fondling her breasts while his wieners just flopped out on her stomach, apparently. Like, what a way to wake up, right? She obviously screams out, because, like, what the fuck? And he takes off, but he's actually chased down by three other men who live in the same apartment building. He was thankfully apprehended and charged with burglary as well as indecent liberties. But I feel like, hello, that should have been sexual assault in my opinion. Would have saved a whole bunch of women from getting hurt later down the road, possibly. Anyhooser, the cops are now on to Ko and his dildo waving ass, and they begin surveillance on him for about three weeks, hoping to catch him in the act. They even put a GPS tracker on his car, and it's in the fucking 80s, you guys. They observe him following major bus routes as well as stalking some female walkers and joggers in the South Hill neighborhood, and rather than waiting for any more women to possibly get hurt, police hope that a witness can verify Ko's identity instead. One of the latest attacks was a 50-year-old woman who was walking around the track at a junior high school. The rape occurred in broad daylight. However, the school janitor noticed a car was parked in the busing area around the same time as the attack. And the janitor also noted the car had some kind of weird yellow license plate. So when the police show the janitor a picture of Fred Coe, who they know drives a car with a weird yellow plate, he sure as shit goes, that's him. So police drive right over to Coe's failing real estate office and arrest him on March 10th of 1981 as the suspect in the rape of the 51-year-old woman who was attacked near the junior high school. The very next day, police asked all the women who reported incidents to the police to come down to the station and possibly identify their attacker in a lineup. Julie Hermia said she was shocked to see so many women basically shoulder to shoulder lined up waiting for their turn to identify him. The prosecuting attorney has since come out with his own book and stated that during this lineup, he had to think on his feet after a recent court ruling regarding suspects in lineups needing to have lawful representation, and when Fred's public defender had strategically decided to refuse the necessary representation, this prosecutor calls up Fred's own editor dad, Gordon Coe, 
who happened to serve in the military during World War II in military intelligence and asked him to serve as Fred's de facto representative. And because Gordon Coe is a well-known people pleaser, he unknowingly obliged and was then made to witness half a dozen women personally identify his own son as their attacker. Over 40 women came in, but only six were able to positively ID Co. in the lineup. Five of them had undergone hypnosis therapy after their initial attacks to help with recollection, but were able to identify him at the lineup. Police assume because of this act of grabbing his victim from behind, usually in the darkness, the rest of the women couldn't be 100% certain in many of the other cases. Though this was still enough for the task force detectives to add five more rape charges against Co, and they held him on $35,000 bail, which his parents immediately posted because they can't be seen with allegations like this tied to them. Fred and his parents, Gordon and Ruth Co, would be adamant that he was not the city's serial rapist and could account for every single charge against him with an alibi. His father, Gordon, who was the managing editor of the city's newspaper, was forced to take a leave of absence from his work, which ended up being his retirement as well. His mother, Ruth, was a former charm school teacher, and all I can think about when people say charm school is those VH1 shows they did. But honestly, this woman is a city socialite and plays the part very well, especially when her son is accused of something horrible. She's loud, she's opinionated, she's like gaudy. The suspected rapist, Fred, said himself, it was a huge case of mistaken identity, he's never even raped anyone, and he's also never worn gloves in his life. So spare him and his family the bullshit accusations. Okay, Co, really? It's fucking Washington we're talking here. Like, you don't have to wear gloves, but you still fucking have some just in case. Like, it snowed here in June before, my friends. But you know what? Even his mother agrees. I've never seen him wear a hat or gloves in his entire life. Still, his family argues they were with him every night or morning they claim he attacked someone, even though his very own girlfriend, who happened to live with him at the time, actually tells police the opposite. A little before Fred's first wife, Jenny, got her shit together and took off, Fred was regularly flirting with a woman who worked at a laundromat he would wash his clothes at. Initially, she said that he came off as annoying, but after weeks of him coming in on the regular, she began to catch some feelings. He would describe his home life to her as a situation where he was simply just dealing with his emotional and alcoholic wife, but hoped soon that they could be together. He even took her to meet his parents after his wife did move away. This girlfriend describes his father as very laid back, very quiet, and submitting. It was very evident to her that Fred's mother, Ruth, wore the pants in the family, and it's also very clear that she's very used to getting her way. She also learns very quickly not to get on his mother's bad side because her ability to be vindictive wasn't something to question. Despite all these seemingly obvious red flags here, she finds Fred mostly adorable, but a little odd at times. Further into their relationship though, she would begin to notice more weird behavior. Fred had this thing about always parking around the block he would keep a pair of clean sweatpants in his car, but she never actually saw him jogging ever, and she would notice large scratches and abrasions to his hands and face that he would always end up explaining away to a loose dog attack while he was out jogging. She was getting pretty good at being able to sniff out his bullshit the longer they were seeing each other. She tells the courts in her testimony at the trial that he's been really weird lately, and even caught him washing an oven mitt at 6.30 in the morning. 
Like, excuse me? Yeah, that's not weird at all. I don't think my husband has ever, ever thought to wash our oven mitts, honestly. Like, what a joke. His former wife also agreed with his live-in girlfriend that his sexual behavior alone is rather odd and that he would walk around their home in California naked and jerk it, just standing butt naked there in the living room, usually in the morning. He's an AM jerker. You know the type. No, I'm I'm kidding. Don't hate me. It's just a joke. So Fred and his first wife, Jennifer, had originally gotten married back in 1972, and they were together in California when he was taking college classes, as well as through the years that Fred was actually a radio DJ in Las Vegas. They had divorced in 1976, and Fred moved back home to Washington, but Jenny had followed him soon after. They remained on and off again until 1980, when she finally had the sense to pick up all her shit and move far away from this raging narcissist. She describes him as obsessed with his physical image. He idolized Hugh Hefner. He only drank Perrier water, and he's always following the latest fashion fads and constantly updating his look to fit the ever-changing trends in the 70s. She said in Jack Olson's book that Fred would even wear wigs just to play a better character for whatever agenda he had next. She explains that he, she explains that he was always boasting about being the next big whatever. He could basically play the part he needed and talk a good game, but when it came down to actually doing any work, he was really just a spoiled brat. He taught her things like how to dine and dash, lie to get what she wants, and mostly, you gotta fake it to make it, baby. He even told her one time after writing a few novels that flopped that he could likely kill it as a bisexual gigolo, which I'm absolutely sure made her feel very secure in their marriage. Like, wowza. She describes the relationship between Fred and his mother is much more similar to a relationship between a boyfriend and girlfriend, even more so than their own marriage. His mother would get extremely jealous whenever Fred began seeing Jennifer, or even more so when they got back together after their divorce. They were even hiding their relationship out of fear of the shitstorm that that woman would rain down when she finally did find out. She thoroughly vandalized one of his cars twice. Then she didn't talk to him for months, and he pouted the whole time. He weirdly craves his mother's approval, and it's pretty evident to everyone in the entire city now how odd their dynamic is by the end of all this. One of Fred's besties was actually in the ID Shattered episode featuring this case. He was also talked about in Olsen's book, and basically this Jay Williams and Fred Coe have been best buds since grade school age. They've sworn a total loyalty of sorts over their years together, and despite them having very different beliefs and obviously work ethic, they are pretty much each other's like ride or die. He would describe Fred and his ability to persuade people using his version of situational ethics to defend his sometimes shady actions. Jay went to visit Fred after he was arrested and says in the episode of Shattered that Fred had asked his friend Jay to retrieve and dispose of a dildo and a running jacket that he had hid away at his parents' home. He also says it's not because he's the rapist, but it's just part of some dumb prank that he's obviously going to have to explain later. Because this is his ride or die, Jay does consider it, but Jay is also a very Christian man and also wants justice for all the women Fred may have hurt, so he only does half of Fred's request and disposes of the dildo because he said he was protecting his mother from having another fit if she came across it first. So the dude ditches it in the dumpster and that's that. 
He does later come forward and inform the police of what he did, and he also went on to testify at his best friend's trial. Though after five hours of deliberation, the jury finds Frederick Coe guilty on four of the original six counts of first-degree rape. Shit hit the fan. His mom, Ruth, is livid that the jury dubbed her son the South Hill Rapist. She tells reporters that she's never going to play fair again because the law doesn't play fair either. There's a bit of a rumor I found as I can't find the right articles on it, just old Facebook comment threads from past Spokane residents that remembered the case. But apparently, hours after the verdict was announced, it's rumored that Ko's attorney was arrested for driving while intoxicated when she crashed her car into the Spokane River drunk as a skunk. And I'm not sure where the hell that it would even come from. It's rather interesting, though, because if it's true... I wonder if she was somehow fooled by Ko and she really did believe he was innocent and possibly had feelings for him. Or maybe she was just super upset that she had lost one of the biggest cases to like ever hit Spokane. But either way, the shit's pretty interesting to say the least. I think the impression was that it was a suicide attempt. The Ko family then goes to hire a new attorney for the sentencing portion of his trial. And at this time, Fred makes a confession to a Dr. Robert Wetzler that he did commit one of the rapes, and this was only because he was so jealous of all the attention that the South Hill rapist was getting, so he went out and did do one copycat rape. Co then makes a request to be housed at a state mental hospital rather than serve his time at a prison, fearing for his personal safety. Because, aw, poor little Fred seems like he doesn't want to be possibly, I don't know raped in prison what a fucking tool the judge is basically like are you fucking kidding me co you just finished telling us for the last six weeks that you're absolutely 100 innocent and this is just one big case of mistaken identity and you're also as sane as they come so fuck out of here with that shit they sentence him to 25 years in prison on one count 20 on the second 30 on the third and the fourth term was a life term but all to be served consecutively no mercy This is when Fred's father, Gordon, is forced to take his leave of absence slash retirement. I'm not sure if it's because they thought he was helping his son not get caught by handling the tip hotline or or if it was just the negative publicity overall. But he actually ended up retiring after like 40 years of working from the very bottom to the top of that place. It's just so unfortunate that his son is such a piece of shit that it even ruined his father's career in the end. So at this time, it's when the book I read for the case was published and released. It's called Son, A Psychopath and His Victims by Jack Olson. He's written quite a few other true crime books, but from what I understand, this is not his best book. It mostly sold within the state of Washington where the crimes occurred, and for me it was a very fast read because I am from the same city. I learned a lot about the city that I actually didn't know, and I would recommend it, and I'll link into the sources for those that are interested. What happened next is just straight out of a Tarantino movie or something. Since the very beginning of the trial, Ruth Coe had remained almost annoyingly adamant that her son was not the South Hill rapist and obviously took his public conviction very hard. She promised not to fight fair anymore, and she fucking wasn't. It was rumored that Ruth was gossiping to others about having friends in the mafia or something like that, but really, she was interested in hiring a hitman. She wanted the prosecuting attorney as well as the judge of her son's trial to be taken out Mr. Goodcat style. And if you don't understand that reference, it's from Lucky Number Slevin and you need to go learn yourself. It's an awesome movie. 
Anyways, basically, Fred's mom, Ruth, was known to be looking for this hitman, and an undercover cop posing as one recorded their conversations and arrested her just after she paid the first payment of $500 cash in a Kmart parking lot. Because how classy, right? She's one classy broad. She's arrested on November 20th of 1981, just two months after her son's incarceration for rape. But five days later, she's released on a $30,000 bail. Her husband, Gordon, would end up actually outing her for her prescription pill addiction, but also felt that she was caught up in a case of simple entrapment. Her attorney claims she would have never actually hired a hitman had the police not offered her one. Apparently, Mrs. Coe had a conversation about wanting to hire the hitman with a woman who then called her own lawyer just after that conversation, and that lady's lawyer had passed the information along to the Spokane police, who were able to catch her paying the lieutenant for the murder plot. It was reported that police were able to obtain a court-granted telephone tap on the Coe family telephone line, where she and the detective had the conversations. I believe they're called the Coe tapes, but they were actually really hard for me to attain in the research. I can mostly just find transcripts where she was clarifying that she specifically wanted the prosecutor to live the rest of his life as a vegetable, as she put it. For whatever reason, the judge in her case seemed to take some pity on her, though. Often like some of the cops do on Live PD when they're dealing with someone that like clearly has personal issues with the law. She was ultimately given 20 years, though it was suspended per she complete one year in a county jail of her choosing with 10 years of probation. She would only have to go back to jail and serve the real 20-year sentence if she fucked up in jail or on probation. That's not much for someone who legit paid money to have two government employees murdered, but whatevs, I guess. I'm not sure why Frederick Coe did this, but in 1982, within the first year of being in prison, he decided to legally change his name to Kevin. I, I don't know either. So most people these days know the South Hill rapist to be named Kevin Coe. However, it's not his true name. I can only guess that he changed his name to disassociate from his crimes because he soon starts chatting it up with women through pen pal correspondence, weaseling money and nudes out of any girl crazy enough to send them to him. As soon as he gets to jail, he also recanted the confession he made to the therapist in the week between his conviction and his sentencing trial. His attorney believed that Coe would have a better chance of his request to be sent to a mental hospital rather than a prison to be granted if he confessed to at least one of the rapes he was charged for so he could qualify for a mental illness. He said after the fact to reporters that it was really all a failed legal ruse, as he did not actually rape someone, he just took the advice of his attorney and said he committed one. He's not a rapist and never was. Whatever. Whatever. Fear came back into the women of Washington in 1984, though, when the Supreme Court decides to overturn all four of Coe's original convictions. They felt that the evidence used in court wasn't appropriate for the charges, specifically his ex's comments, which might have been just spitefully made, as well as information that was used in court from witnesses that were once hypnotized. They threw all that out and ordered a new trial for Co. but this time it had to be held in Seattle, Washington, rather than where the crimes occurred over 400 miles away. He was then reconvicted on three of the original four counts in January of 1985, and now he's to serve a life term plus an additional 55 years. The jury was said to be hung on the fourth case, and I couldn't find specifically why. 
In the fall of 1986, it seems as though Coe was able to rope in a live one, and he married a Mrs. Sean O'Brien in a prison ceremony after they grew to know each other through their pen pal letters after she read Jack Olson's book and just found him so interesting. She apparently helps him in his quest to sell his own book, this time from prison, but it's probably lapped at everywhere she takes it. Washington State Supreme Court agrees with Coe again when he appealed two of the three recent convictions, with the point that those two particular cases were still only able to identify Coe in his lineup after their hypnosis sessions, which to me seems valid, but honestly, any evidence gained from hypnosis seems to really be just as valid as any results you can try to pull from a polygraph test. Neither of them rarely, if ever, stand up in court, I think. Because of this, Coe's confessions were then reduced to one of the original four, and the only case where the victim was able to identify Coe as her attacker without the use of hypnosis, she clearly saw his face during the attack. This also reduces his total sentence down to 25 years, and with time served, that meant that he potentially only had four years until parole eligibility. Sean O'Brien would ask Coe for a divorce just two short years into his bullshit, by that time, he had convinced her to rack up over 12 grand in credit card debt with efforts of producing the book and God knows what else. In my opinion, that's what you get when you involve yourself with creeps in prison for horrible crimes, but that's just me. In 1981, CBS airs the made-for-television movie based on Jack Olson's book and this whirlwind case. It's called Sins of the Mother, and it stars Elizabeth Montgomery and Dale Midcalf. It's again your typical 90s dramatized lifetime movie flick, and, and not bad by any means because I'm a 90s girl myself. It's sort of funny because when you watch the movie, you feel like it's straight up cheesy, but it's honestly really not exaggerated too much because the story itself is exactly like the movie. In 1992, Coe is officially eligible for parole, but he had to explain later in an interview with Dateline that he's only granted parole upon attending parole hearings, where you have to admit to your crimes, which is just not something he's willing to do. He still claims his innocence despite dozens of women's testimonies and spends most of his time and energy catching the true South Hill rapist, he says. So he's just going to sit in jail for his full sentence, which is 14 more years at this point. Like, wow, this dude would rather risk his life for 14 more years than to swallow his pride and admit guilt and be released. Like, what a child. But in 1994, he actually is attacked while he's at Walla Walla State Penitentiary in the telephone area. Another inmate slashes his throat, requiring 100 stitches to repair it, and he did it with a razor blade attached to a prison-issued toothbrush, just straight-up shank style. The same inmate had committed both acts of violence towards other prisoners and claims it feels good to hurt other offenders, though he's in jail himself on a rape charge. Logic. He also got 15 additional years because of this, but hey, it, it brought Coe's victim some karmic justice, I guess. Fred's parents would both eventually pass away in the 10 years before he's released. He was said to not have requested to attend either of their funerals, which is pretty interesting because he's literally fighting to be released in any other way. Just a month before his scheduled release date in 2006, he does that interview with Dateline about the case, and he explains he's hoping to move to Nevada upon release because he just fucking hates Washington, but really, it's because we hate him. 
He also laughed at the prospect that he would be considered for treatment at Washington's Alcatraz-esque specialty confinement center upon his release because he believes he doesn't meet the criteria that he's mentally abnormal. Back before his parole eligibility, Washington state lawmakers passed a statute that the government would have the authority to indefinitely detain a sexually violent predator as deemed in a civil trial, even after their sentence is fully served, and it's called the Community Protection Act. And guess what? A week before his scheduled release, Washington State General Attorney Robert McKenna does the damn thing and filed a petition to have Coe civilly committed to McNeil Island. That's where we sent the 1-2% of the state's most violent sexual offenders with the highest risk of recommitting. It's honestly really funny because it's like the whole time they knew he wanted to be in a mental hospital rather than getting raped in prison. So they're like, okay, Fred or Kevin or whatever your name is, you rapist. You can most definitely go to a mental hospital now and possibly forever since you sat in jail for the last 25 years and you're completely unrepentant. What a sucker. The same week they're beginning jury selection for his commitment trial to McNeil Island, a YouTube video was posted by a man named Colin. He is claiming in the video that he's located at the Spokane courthouse trying to enter his written deposition on why Coe should be sent away for good. He claims that the then-Fred Coe had sexually molested him as an 8-year-old boy during the years of 1975 and 76 when he was married to his aunt, that would be his first wife Jennifer we're talking, and they were living in California. I have no reason not to believe what this man says. It's not easy to come forward, especially for men, especially for prior childhood abuse. It's not out of the realm of possibilities for me to believe that Coe began his rapist career with someone he could easily manipulate, easily overpower, and easily discredit, especially an eight-year-old child. However, his deposition wasn't allowed into the court, and I believe that's why he posted the video when and where he did, to tell those that would listen about how Co really doesn't deserve to associate with society anymore. Co and his attorneys had requested that instead of being held in the county jail during this trial, that he be seen at Eastern State Hospital because he's suffering from severe depression and they request a change of venue for the trial, but they didn't submit enough evidence for an impartial setting, so both requests are denied and Co is just going to have to tough it out like a big boy. The trial itself is four weeks long and there was an original pool of 667 potential jurors, over 200 exhibits, and 70,000 documents submitted into court. They also delayed multiple times when Coe's attorney would not allow him to take a sexual arousal test with a psychologist that would verify her claims that Coe is a person with several types of paraphilia or sexual abnormalities and is aroused by non-consexual sex acts. His defense team's psychologist claims Coe is a low-risk offender due to his age. He'd be like 60 at the time. He was only ever charged with one rape, and that doesn't indicate to him that his likelihood of reoffending is very high. He believes that not all rapists have a mental abnormality, and, and excuse me sir, but on what planet is thinking rape is perfectly fine is not mentally abnormal. Fucking asshole. His former living girlfriend's recorded testimony from his original trial back in 1981 was played in the court as she didn't want a damn thing to do with this Fred Kevin ever again. Jurors got to listen to how she found him washing oven mitts around the time of the attacks, as well as how she'd seen a couple of leather gloves all chewed up and ratty looking. Lastly, and most importantly, 
a long-lost evidence box that had been recovered before trial was accepted into evidence and would contain the DNA slide to now scientifically prove that Fred Kevin Coe committed at least the rape of Julie Harmia. The jury finds Coe fits the criteria as a sexually violent predator who's likely to reoffend. It's sort of like, instead of Survivor where you're voted off the island, this jury voted him on the island, away from society, locked away, with the worst of the worst. Bye bye loser. Of course, he automatically appeals the commitment in 2011 and immediately requests a new trial. He'll fight this shit until he dies, it looks like. Obviously, it's denied a whole year later, so Ko has to reroute his efforts and get specific. He points out areas where he feels his rights were infringed upon, and he wasn't allowed to interview the witnesses for himself, though that wouldn't have done anything but further traumatize the witnesses, honestly. He also says they shouldn't have allowed evidence of prior charges that never accrued convictions. The state looked for him, they really did, but they couldn't find any reversible errors this time. They just won't budge for him, and I believe and I believe his last and most recent effort was a lawsuit filed with the U.S. District Court claiming he's been held in unconstitutional confinement. But yet again, they told him to kick rocks in 2014, so he has to stay there until he can demonstrate that he's been treated, which he'll most likely never be able to do. His sad little egotistical mind just can't handle that he did something wrong and got caught. He cannot lie, cheat, or steal his way out of this one, and he's seemingly stuck for good exactly where he belongs. Honestly, I love that this asshole has been banished to an island for creeps. However, I'm also kind of bothered by the fact that this wasn't done in one of the other cases I covered with Joseph Duncan. Check it out if you haven't listened. He was also released from Washington a couple years after they passed this Community Protection Act, and had he been petitioned for commitment, an entire family might still be alive. And, you know, that just really grinds my gears. However, something I absolutely love about this case is the oh-so-ironic fact that Co has been sent to the establishment known as McNeil Island. And, in fact, the man who uploaded that YouTube video deposition about being Co's first true victim at the age of eight, his name is actually Colin McNeil. McNeil Island. So, you know, that's how God works in mysterious ways for you. I always ask around in my family about what they remember during the cases that they were around for, and my mother-in-law, though she's not much into true crime, she did tell me that during the time of the South Hill Rapist, even she was scared for her own safety at times. For example, she was also alive for a Spokane serial killer, Robert Yates. He's also another podcast episode I did. Check that one out. His reign of terror was around the same time. However, with his victims being local prostitutes, she obviously never gave him much thought. But Ko did manage to freak out almost every woman in the area because his victims were normal everyday women just going about their daily lives. Her chances of being attacked by someone like Ko over Yates were much, much higher, which obviously every other woman in my family sorrowfully agreed with. I'm not going to waste much time on the idea that Frederick Kevin Coe is innocent. Despite it mainly consisting of circumstantial evidence, police believe they could connect Fred Kevin Coe to, to 36 total sex offenses. 18 of those were attacks of rape that were not included in the trial. Never mind all the horrible times he probably attacked women and they were too afraid to report him. These specific types of attacks and indecencies virtually ceased with his original arrest in March of 1981. 
And not to say that crime had stopped altogether, but that string of very weird attacks on the South Hill did at least stop. It's kind of like trying to argue that Bill Cosby is innocent. Once you start getting, like, fingered by that many women, it's really hard to discredit the vast amount of them. I mean, there's not just some crazy cult out there putting all their efforts into conspiring against this family like they would like to believe. There's quite honestly a long recorded history of similar incidents throughout his entire life, always cutting corners, lying, making excuses, acting out in childish ways, clearing to his 30s. It's obvious there's a level of some sort of abuse between Fred and his mother. It's just not as clear to me what kind. I'm not a psychologist. The way he would break down after hurting some of his victims makes me think his mother used to do that to him. So at the very least, there was probably some heavy emotional abuse going on in the home. I don't want to even really think about any other type of abuse that might have happened in this family. Gordon, the father, from what I can gather, is really just submissive in all this and was most likely never intervening in any of those times at the home. Ruth Co. is almost like a Kris Kardashian, Kim Kardashian's mom, the way she dotes on Fred as long as he's doing what she wants. We're all aware that some of history's biggest creeps turned out to have some major mommy issues. Gypsy Rose, Ed Kemper, um, the son of Sam. I could keep going. There's without a doubt tons of books that have been published that talk about murderers with mommy issues. Hey, that should be a band name. Murderers with mommy issues. Yeah. Lastly, today I'm going to ask that if you're enjoying my podcast, I believe this will be my seventh episode out so far. Please consider taking a minute or two out of your day to leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts, or if you do not, please take a second to share your favorite episode with a friend. I appreciate each and every one of you who has listened for even one minute to any of my crazy-ass ranting about serial killers. You guys are my people, and I love you for it, and I hope you all have a great week. So that's what I got for you. I hope you enjoyed my rendition of this story, and if so, please tell all your creepy friends about it. You can find the sources I used for the episode in its description. You can follow my Instagram account at truecrimequeen for some laughs if you need a little pick-me-up after all that dark shit. Feel free to leave an honest review on iTunes, or maybe even consider clicking the link in the description to make a small donation to my equipment fund so I can keep making you guys some killer-ass content. See what I did there? I know. All right, bye!